Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Walking in the world today? How are you walking out your faith in the world today? Are you walking in your own power to the glory of your own name? Are you walking in the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of the name of God in Jesus Christ? Like, uh, you know, let me just encourage you today that um, walking by faith in the God who is sovereign over all of human history, the God who is working out his redemptive purposes in the context of human history, always and in all ways. Um, there, there is a way to walk by faith in the midst of very contentious, um, troubling times, and, and to do so as a person of peace who sows peace along the way, because we know the one who is the Prince of Peace, and we know the end of the story from the beginning. So let me just encourage you today um, to examine the way you're walking. Are you walking by faith, or are you walking by sight? Um, are you walking in your own power, sort of as a functional atheist in the world, or are you walking by the very power of the Holy Spirit? Are you uh, walking in a way that makes a name for yourself, seeks to make a name for yourself or your group, whatever that is, or are you uh, seeking to really lift up the name of Jesus and make his name famous, not only uh, in your own community, but in every way that you interact in the conversations of this day. So my encouragement uh, today that you and I would be people who walk by faith and not by sight, certainly tending to acknowledging, recognizing the concerns of our day and engaging those concerns in ways that honor Jesus. Um, But every moment, every footfall, every step we take, um, we do so acknowledging that that is uh, an issue, a concern, a patch of earth, a relationship over which Jesus already reigns. He already reigns. And when Scripture promises, when God promises that the day will come when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you look around and you say, today is not that day, don't fail to use the word yet. This is not yet that day. But this is the day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it as we seek to honor him and walk out our faith in ways uh, that honor Jesus. All right, next up, I've got Justin Gibney. Uh, He is with the AND campaign. Love to talk with him about uh, at the intersection of faith and politics. I'm going to focus in with Justin on Martin Luther King Day, which is coming up on Monday. Uh, I'm going to invite him to talk about Martin Luther King Jr., um, why we're still talking about him today. Uh, Maybe we'll even lift up some uh, of Martin Luther King's most famous quotes or the ones that maybe are not the most famous, but the ones that we as Christians certainly ought to be amplifying. That conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
Justin Gibney uh, is an attorney. He is a student of theology. Uh, he is a public theologian. He was a football player. Justin, good morning. Happy hey, New Year. Hey, good morning. How's it going, Carmen? Good. So we could talk football because there was a game last night uh, that I have made absolutely no reference to yet on the show. So maybe we should just give a, a quick shout out to the LSU Tigers. As Jim and I started watching the game last night, which I admit I did not watch the entire game, um, this we agreed upon. The Tigers were going to win. <laughs> that is true. That was going to happen either way, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, so when we um, when we consider what's coming up this Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, um, I just just when I say that, when I say that day is coming up and it is coming up again, and you think about what has transpired uh, since the last time that we acknowledged this man and his a witness and service, and the time before that, and the time before that, I'm wondering if um, uh, you just there's some feelings and some thoughts that maybe rise to the surface when we talk about MLK Day. Yeah, I, I just immediately think about that legacy, uh, a legacy of number one, calling America to do better, to live up to its promises, but then also calling the church to live up to what it's supposed to be. Uh, to see justice as something that we are here, you know, in part uh, to 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 bring right to to kind of shed light on that and shed light on uh, the gospel. And so I think his legacy is very much a Christian legacy, uh, and it should remind all of us, especially in the church, that we should at all times be vigilant when it comes to the subject of justice. Uh, it's not something that we can get comfortable or complacent about. It's something that we should always be checking in a broken world to make sure that our neighbors are being treated justly. And to me, that's what the, the Christian legacy of MLK means. It's, it, it's calling us to uh, to a greater purpose and, and to kind of live out um, some of the promises that this country has made. A few things that MLK said, these may not be his most famous quotes, but they are um they are quotes. Well, this very first one um, actually uses the language that you just used, and and it's the language of light. He used he used darkness and light frequently in um, in what he talked about. And so, you know, I just want to lift up a quote, and then you know, help, have you help us um, see that quote in light of the days in which we now live. So, um, this is Martin Luther King Jr. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Yeah, that's 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 a beautiful quote. Uh, I think it speaks to our discourse. Uh, I think people on both sides of the ideological spectrum can look to the other side and say, man, there's some bad things going on over there. The question is, what do you do next? Uh, do you respond in kind? And that's what I unfortunately see a lot of Christians responding in kind to a very toxic discourse or, or, you know, toxic words that have been tossed their way? Or do you take the high road, put your pride aside? Because really a lot of this is about pride and the way that we respond to others. Do we put our pride aside and find ways to be more constructive? And that doesn't mean that you always avoid a word that that can be um, uh, that, that can really uh, impact someone. Right. I don't think we have to go around using using euphemisms. But it does mean that we don't dehumanize the person we're in a conversation with and that we do try to, you know, try to speak with grace. Uh, because, again, you know, 
I think it's an age old problem when you kind of become evil to fight evil. And that's what uh, King was getting at there. All right. Here's another one. Um, And this one's kind of long. Another way that you love your enemy is this. When the opportunity presents itself for you to defeat your enemy, that's the time which you must not do it. There will come a time in many instances when the person who hates you most, the person who misused you most, the person who has gossiped about you the most, the person who has spread false rumors about you most, there will come a time when you will have an opportunity to defeat that person. It might be in terms of a recommendation for a job or in terms of helping that person to make some move in life. That's the time you must do it because that is the meaning of love. Yeah, that's excellent. That's excellent. I think we have a problem in our society sometimes with feeling like we have to eliminate or maybe even humiliate our opponents. And it's really not about that. I mean, if we read the Bible, we're supposed to be winning brothers and sisters. And if politics isn't ultimate, even though we know it's important, if it isn't ultimate, we have to keep our eye on the fact that we need to be evangelizing before we're going around having political debates. Political debates can be fine, but when we're just trying to humiliate people, what is that doing to our witness and our ability to evangelize and and win people? Uh, And I think I think that's what it is. It's better to win somebody over to your side than to, you know, than to force them or to bludgeon them into it. When I read, um, I mean, there's there's just hundreds of quotes like this by MLK. And when I read them, Justin, I mean, I just admit to you, I'm, I, I look around and I think, wow, in the Twitterverse today, where are the people who are speaking like this? Um, and where are the people who are speaking with this kind of moral authority? Um, where are the people who, you know, not only have, uh, you know, some sort of massive following on Twitter or some other, um, uh, you know, so, some other platform, but people who because they are righteous and because they are working for righteousness, they have, they ha- they have created a righteous movement um, in our nation. I, I got to tell you, I kind of long for that today. When we come back from the break, we'll, can we apply some of this conversation to an issue that I know is close to your heart? Um, mm-hmm. And that is the displacement of the poor from our cities. Um, and I know this is, I know this would be an issue for King. If he were, if he were among us today, this would be an issue for him, for him, the way in which um, people are being pushed out of urban centers because it's become literally too expensive to live there anymore. Could we could we address that as a justice issue when we come back? Let's do it. All right. I'm talking with Justin Gibney from the And Campaign. He and I will be right back. We make a miracle walking, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God. So we're going to um, have a complicated conversation now because as our cities, um, the, the word here is gentrify, but as our cities um, become places where people of wealth want to return, people who are poor are then displaced. Um, I'm talking with Justin Gibney from the AND campaign. Uh, Justin, just describe reality. Uh, what What is happening um, in the cities across America where, you know, particularly those cities where um, there has been not just renewal, but wow, really rapid growth. I happen to live in one of those cities and the poor are being displaced. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think this is probably the biggest failure of uh, progressive cities uh, is that um, as the, you know, um, as uh, certain groups want to move back into the city, 
um, the the prices of everything go go up, and what ends up happening is gentrification, which displaces the poor. And so the poor who were in the city, who were placed in the city initially, are kind of pushed out of the city um, because there just isn't housing that can be affordable. So if you go to San Francisco, um, we can talk progressivism all day, but you if you look around, there are no poor poor people can't afford to live there unless they're living on the street. Uh, same thing happens in areas in New York and so on. It, it is a huge failure because they haven't made provision for poor people to stay in the city. Now, what people have to understand is once poor people are moved out from the center of the city, a lot of times they're moved away from jobs and other resources. So whereas nonprofits could kind of know where to go to feed kids, you know, to give them breakfast before school. Now, when they're scattered all around the city, it's a lot harder for them to get to the resources that they need. Uh, There are still cities who have an opportunity to change this because, you know, they're, they're still ahead and they have some land or whatever that they can use to create low income housing. But it's a problem that. If we don't, you know, really start uh, looking at closely, we're going to have, you know, it's going to be it's going to be something that's going to be hard to reverse. I see. um, Well, you know me well enough to know I see opportunity. Right. Anytime. Anytime there's a need, um, I want to I want to see opportunity. And so I see an opportunity here for the church. The church is already dispersed in all of the places where um, where these individuals and these families um, are being pushed to the margins of uh, of ter- of urban centers. There's already churches there, and so let me um, let me just awaken the hearts of those listening right now. If you know you're living in a community into which the urban poor are uh, are now moving, now finding themselves, please view that as an opportunity for hospitality, an opportunity for your church to um, maybe change the way it has approached mission in the past. Um, your your neighbors, those moving in around your church, are the new mission field. Um, it's no longer half a world away. It's now at your doorstep. They may not look like you. They may not have been educated in the same way you were educated. They may not speak the same language you speak. They are yet people created in the image of God. And now they're right there. They're right there on your doorstep, outside your door. Welcome them in and sit down together and say, okay, you're now the new neighbors here. That means this is now your neighborhood church. What does that look like and what does it mean? And Justin, this is, I think, the really hard place for for congregations, because that means that we have to allow the people that God brings into our communities to literally rearrange the furniture. Yeah, that's what right. I mean, creating community and bringing people into your community doesn't just ma- mean saying that you automatically have to do exactly what we do and, and, and do it how we do it. Uh, you have to be open to learning from the people that are coming into your community. Uh, one of the things, that, I mean, when you talk about the church getting involved with this issue, that's exactly what we're doing in Atlanta. I founded a group called uh, City Roots ATL, which is really about keeping low-income people in the city where the resources are. And really churches, you know, pastors I've talked to, uh, leaders that I've talked to have been really excited about this uh, movement. And so we're going to actually be marching to advocate for this issue on MLK Day, so so next Monday, to really let the city know that we're serious about this issue and we're going to hold people accountable for making sure that the poor are, are taken care of. Okay, City Roots ATL. So there is, there's, there are several facets to this conversation. There's the reality that some people have already been displaced, and that needs uh, to be addressed through the building of community in those places. But there are still many 
um, who live, who continue to live in urban centers, but they are being um, over time pushed out. And that's really what you are seeking to address through this effort. How can people connect with you? You know, because there's people listening from all across the country and they're thinking that is an issue in my city. That's an issue in Hartford. That's an issue in the Twin Cities. That's an issue. Um, it's, an, it's an issue everywhere. It's an issue here in Nashville. How do people connect with the information um, related to City Roots ATL so they might capture a vision of something they might do in their own city? Sure, absolutely. You can go to cityrootsatl.com and you can contact us for, um, from there with your questions or if, you, if you're in Atlanta and want to march with us, we can give you the information on that. Uh, but what this is, you know, this is an extension of Martin Luther King's movement. I mean, it, as you probably know, uh, before he died, he was still talking about race, but he was also talking about class and poverty. Uh, and so this is one of those huge issues when it comes to housing, uh, housing for the poor. We cannot just let it take care of itself. We have to be deliberate to make sure that people are being treated fairly and that we're taking care of the least of these. You know, housing is, um, you know, where you live determines where you go to school. It determines whether or not you have access to a grocery store where, you know, really good food uh, is sold at a reasonable price. Um, and there's just so many people. I mean, we. We talk about food deserts. We talk about um, the challenge of education. Um, and, and so I think, Justin, when we talk about urban displacement, um, it's actually a really good starting point of conversation for people who have not yet thought about all of those other issues and concerns. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the things the Ann campaign tries to do is raise civic literacy. Uh, and so we have I did a video in one of our civic updates talking about the history of this displacement when the projects uh, were torn down. And in many cities, there really just wasn't a plan to place these people in a different in a, in a, in a better situation. We just kind of applauded that we didn't have these ugly projects. But there was in a lot of cases, there just wasn't anywhere else to go for people. And so they ended up in really tough situations. So we always have to edu educate ourselves on the issue and then be prepared to act uh, where we can. All right. You guys can visit Justin at the AND campaign, andcampaign.org. If you want information about what's going on on MLK Day in Atlanta, cityrootsatl.com. Um, Justin, uh, I'm going to give both of us an assignment before we talk next. Let's both see Just Mercy so that we can talk about uh, talk about it next time. Let's do it. I'm headed there hopefully in the next week or so. All right. Love it. All right. That's Justin Gibney. Uh, you can follow him on, you know, all the, all the social medias. Thanks, man. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. We'll be right back. So when tragic things happen, like uh, like the earthquake in Haiti, um, we've recently talked with um, Dr. David Vanderpool about you know how they just uprooted their life here in the United States and moved there um, by the call of God to alleviate the pain and suffering of people there. My next conversation is with a guy who took a similar path um, to a different uh, to a different country, this time to Honduras. His name is Michael Miller. Uh, the MICA Project, Honduras, is what we're going to talk about today. Um, this is a this is a life journey that's really extraordinary. He is World Magazine's Daniel of the Year, and um, you're going to love this conversation about a guy who felt so compelled, so compelled of the Lord, uh, drawn to these street kids in Tegucigalpa, Honduras, that he moved there and he's made his life there, and he's changing the lives of others. That conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
So um, in the middle of the summer, what are you going to be doing? I am going to be at the Northwestern Christian Writers Conference. I'd love to meet you there. It's July 24th and 25th. We have got an early bird discount through the month of January. So to go to the Northwestern Christian Writers Conference.com, that's Northwestern Christian Writers Conference.com, and register July 24 and 25. I'd like to see you there. We'll be right back. This is Max Lucado. None of us can do what all of us can do. Remember Jesus' commission to his disciples? You, speaking to all of you collectively, you will be my witnesses. Jesus did not issue individual assignments. He works in community. Jesus is the head of the body, which is the church. I am not his body. You are not his body. We together are his body. But you know, this body has been known to misbehave. The brain discounts the heart. Academics discount worshipers. The hands criticize the knees. People of action criticize people of prayer. It is a clear case of mutiny on the body. We cannot say, I have no need of you. Cooperation is more than a good idea. It is a command. Unity matters to God. May it matter to us. This is Max Lucado. So welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I am pleased to be joined today by Michael Miller. You can find him at micaprojecthonduras.org. That's Micah, like the prophet, micaprojecthonduras.org. Michael Miller, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Well, thank you. It's a privilege to be here with you all today. So I learned about you from an article that World Magazine posted. Um, you're the Daniel of the year. That's a that's first of all, that seems like quite a hefty title to carry. You know, that is a very hefty title to carry. Only with uh, only with God's grace and much mercy would any human be able to carry a title like Daniel of the year. So I feel like that your mom is probably, she is probably the one with the Daniel of the Year Award on her mantle, because I feel like when we think about the people who have, um, who are walking in the world like Daniel, uh, it's because they were raised um, by, you know, by people who knew the Lord and then sort of infected their children with, uh, with that love and passion, which is very much who you have become. I mean, you have become a father to so many young people. So introduce people to the MICA Project in Honduras. Absolutely, Carmen. We actually started the MICA Project 20 years ago next week, so we're very close to our anniversary. And we have a heart for the children that live on the streets and call the streets their home here in the capital city of Honduras, Tegucigalpa. And so you see groups of kids all over the city, um, they're using yellow shoe glue, which sounds strange maybe to those that aren't familiar with the street kid population, but it's a strong toxic glue. And as the kids inhale it, it causes them just to basically forget about the fact that they're living on the streets. It causes them to forget the, the pains of hunger um, and it basically just zones them out. And so you'll see these kids uh, just walking around like zombies with uh, a little empty soda bottle full of uh, yellow shoe glue. And so... The MICA Project, uh, gosh, way back 
in the year 2000 opened so that we could provide a new life uh, for this, this population of street kids. So you actually moved to Tegucigalpa in 1998. Um, you were very young. What, what prompted that move? And then what prompted you to stay? Because it's one thing, I, I have been to Honduras on short-term mission trips. Um, I have flown in and out of that crazy airport in Tegucigalpa. <laughs> Um, I have, I, I, I will tell you that it's it, without a question, the worst smelling place I've ever been. Um, right. I'm just saying, and, and the air quality is very poor. Um, and it the is. poverty is, is intense. I mean, I, it's, it's massive. So what prompted you to go? And then what prompted you to stay? It is. Yes. And I, my hands still get clammy when uh, we land at the airport here, even though I've done it hundreds of times. So as the planes sneak in between the mountains, uh, I actually came to Honduras uh, the first time as a Wheaton College student all the way back in 1993 to do an international studies internship uh, for six months. And uh, when I met my first street kid, to put it uh, that way, if you just... You know, your brain doesn't know what to do with a an 11-year-old boy sitting on a street corner with dead eyes because of yellow shoe glue. And it's just not something that we're used to seeing. And it, it literally broke my heart. And it changed the tra- trajectory of my life in the process. And so I went back to, after I graduated from Wheaton, I was a teacher for a few years in Houston. Then God just really called me back to Honduras because with kids like this, you're dealing with, uh, even from birth sometimes, issues of neglect and abandonment and trauma and violence. And so short-term answers are not really answers for them. You know, you have to, you have to really invest a life in these kids for transformation to happen. And then you'd only been there a couple of months when, um, I mean, something genuinely life-changing happened. So tell people about standing on your balcony and what you witnessed happening um, beneath you in the valley. Yes. In the end of October of 1998, Hurricane Mitch just tore Honduras to shreds. I mean, uh, we're in Tegucigalpa. Usually we're protected from tropical storms because we're so far inland, but this massive storm just came over uh, the country and just sat here and stalled out and uh, we just watched neighborhoods come tumbling down the mountains and uh, whole sections of the city just uh, flooded under 15, 20 feet of water and bridges destroyed. And uh, you couldn't be living in this country, even though I'd just been here for a few weeks by that point. You couldn't live in this country without uh, trying to do something uh, for the thousands and thousands of people that lost their homes and their livelihoods. And so uh, began to help out in the relief effort uh, after Hurricane Mitch. Which one of the things that resulted in was the construction of a community that uh, locally is now known as the Miller, which I know you demurred when they wanted to name it after you. And so it's technically named after your mom, um, via Linda Miller, which is probably not how they pronounce it. So what is it? Uh, what would be the accurate pronunciation locally? That's right. It's Via Linda Miller, but they do call it La Miller when they are talking collo- colloquially. And I did strenuously oppose having it named <laughs> after me, but they insisted. And yes, it's an amazing community of 165 homes of people that 
uh, just lost everything during Hurricane Mitch. And one of the things that makes it so amazing is that I was the only outside person to be involved in the project. And it was, other than that, a completely grassroots effort. I mean, we had grandmas and children and men and women and people of every age uh, joining together to rebuild this new community. And so uh, it was a beautiful thing to see uh, people um, helping not only themselves, but their neighbors to rebuild their lives. And when we come back, um, I would love for you to share the story of Pedro Martinez. Um, and then, because that is really just this wonderful story of redemption, um, a boy who was on the streets from the age of seven and is now 31, has this, this incredible testimony. But I would also um, love for you, Michael, to to tell us other stories that maybe um, don't end quite as well, are not yet at this stage of conversation. Because I do think that when we um, when we talk about what is happening uh, in cities around the world, and we talk about Christian efforts um, to bring a redemptive witness, um, we we have to recognize that this is hard work, and it is um, it is a long life. It is a lifelong labor of love. And so, would you be willing to tell us a couple of stories when we come back? Absolutely, absolutely. So you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I am conversing with Michael Miller from the MICA Project. You can find it at micaprojecthonduras.org. We'll be right back. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. Continuing my conversation now with Michael Miller from the MICA Project. You can find it at micaprojecthonduras.org. Michael, just before the break, I asked if you would tell us the story of uh, Pedro Martinez. Absolutely. Uh, Pedro was basically born onto the streets. Uh, His mom had significant mental illnesses and was on the streets herself. And so you can imagine a kid being born uh, into this family where there's no, there's really even no ability to love or show human connection. And so that's how he began his life. And so he was running the streets by the time he could walk Uh, began to get involved with some gang activity as well. And uh, really just was was one of these these stories that could end up uh, being being counted as a statistic, right? Uh, One of the many, many people that lose their lives in their childhood because of the violence and poverty of of their country. But Pedro came to the MICA project and began his process with us. Uh, basically barely even knowing how to read and write at the age of 13. But, you know, another thing about the kids on the streets is that many of them just show incredible resilience. And um, I would never want to to say that it's just mica uh, pouring into an empty vessel because these kids come having learned strategies to survive and having uh, had to figure out how to get through each day. And so we want to leverage that and we want to use this, even the strengths they've come in, even out of desperate circumstances. And so Pedro, man, we saw uh, a sense of, uh, I, I guess you could say ambition, but in the best sense of that word in him, and he just began to move forward and not look back. And uh, to make a long story short, he went through high school with Micah's education program. He wanted to be a civil engineer and which is, probably the most difficult degree you can get in Honduras. And he pushed through long nights in college. (laughs) We had to have a lot of pep talks along the way. And uh, fast forward, 
many years, and he is now a civil engineer who supervises many different projects for the city of Tegucigalpa. And so it, it really, it's an exciting, it's, it's an exciting story of resilience and redemption and this life on life ministry that you and now others are doing um, at the MICA project. But I appreciate that in this World Magazine uh, piece, one of the things that you you choose to pivot to and talk about is that not every story um, is not every story is like Pedro's story. So um, remind us of of just how difficult this is. That's right, Carmen. I appreciate you giving me a space to do that because when you work with this population, <laughs> one of the first things you begin to learn is that as a human being, I can't save anybody. I mean, I. I can give them all the love. I can infuse them with the message of the gospel, uh, opportunities. But because of the extreme brokenness that these kids come from, uh, it, it's that's all I can do. And it's really between uh, them and, and the Lord what happens after that. We have a kid that we just love desperately named Axel. And we met him on the streets when he was 12 years old. Both of his parents were gang members. Uh, His dad had been killed by the gangs and his mom had disappeared several years earlier. And this kid, when we met him on the streets, usually the kids are excited to see us when we visit them as part of our street ministry team. But he would always walk in the opposite direction. He just had so much anger. He really just grown up in the gang environment. So that's all he knew about human connection. And so Axel came in to the MICA project in 2017 um, at the age of uh, 12. (laughs) And then that whole next year, because of an addiction, I mean, you can imagine a 12-year-old addict. Uh, I just remember vividly, he'd wake up on a Monday and you could just see it in his eyes. His eyes just had this look that he was in crisis, that he was fighting it. And we're not a lockdown program. And so Axel would walk out our door again and go back and just spend a week, two weeks, three weeks, just blown out on yellow glue and other drugs. But, you know, our, our calling is, our calling is um, not to give them one chance at success. You know, we have, a, we have a God who is a God of grace and he opens his arms. And so we do the same. And um, Axel probably came back into the Micah house 10, 12 different times that year. And, um, you know, each of those times we just we just had to accept him with open arms and encourage him to continue to move his life forward. That happens. Um, we don't know that we don't know the end. We, we uh, don't know. You know, if I had a crystal ball and could see 10 years into the future, <laughs> that would be great. But but we don't. Uh, we are called to trust the Lord in these lives, uh, regardless of the outcome. You know, we we uh, we say, come what may. You know, we're, we're not called just to just to choose the ones that might have the best chance of success. We're called to into any lives. We've actually, Carmen, and even in the last few years, uh, buried eight kids. And these are kids who have been a part of the project and we loved desperately and we wanted the best for them. But they ended up going back to Tegucigalpa's violent streets and losing their lives. And uh, that's, you know, we have to deal with the grief and the loss and the trauma of that and then continue to get up every day and love the kids that are in front of us. 
I'm talking with Michael Miller. Uh, we're talking about his work at the MICA Project in Honduras. You can find it at micaprojecthonduras.org. Um, Michael, I want to I want to leave people with um, with a word of hope, and I want you to talk about um, the redemption of family because that's one of the things that really comes through um, in in all of this. One of the things that's being redeemed is the very idea of family and what it looks like to uh, to have family with other people because they are beloved of God. Amen. Amen. We are not called to be an institution because an institution cannot raise a child. <laughs> God created the family to raise a child, and that means uh, being in a small, focused environment where you give the kids everything a family does, an abundant love and grace, also discipline and structure, uh, an ability for that, that child to discover the talents and gifts that God has given him, and then allowing them to help those flower and flourish. And that is what we are called to do here. We have a, an amazing staff of Hondurans and some Americans as well. And again, we're not called to just punch in a time clock and uh, babysit. <laughs> we're called to invest deeply in these lives and to... Uh, be what they were not able to get from their birth families. If people want to connect with you and what you're doing, uh, is the website the best way? Yes, we have uh, we have an email uh, address on our website. We're always wanting to connect with people. Love to hear from you. It's a great opportunity. Um, if you are looking in this new year for uh, a place where God is clearly at work through his people, let me just encourage you to check out micaprojecthonduras.org. Uh, Michael Miller, uh, thank you so very much. And uh, I just think that your mother uh, and her Sunday school class are also just a great inspiration. So a little shout out today to Linda. Amen. 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 Have a blessed day, my friend. Thank you, Carmen. All right. We'll be right back. So some of you may be thinking, um, okay, I cannot go to the Nuba Mountains like Tom Katina. I cannot go to Haiti like David Vanderpool. I cannot go to Honduras like Michael Miller. Um, I cannot go to Togo, West Africa like Jennifer DeKrieger. I mean, the, the list is long, right? And so you're, you are wondering, well, what can I do? How could I be used of God today to um, bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to bear on the lives of those immediately around me? Um, we have street kids in every city, not just Tegucigalpa. We have people in medical distress and medical need, not just in uh, in Haiti and in the Nuba Mountains of Sudan. Um, we have people in uh, who are lonely and who feel outcast or estranged. We have people who are walking in the darkness of depression and despair right in the communities where we live. So... Um, although you may not be called to go a half a world away, you are called to be a, an, a kingdom ambassador, an agent of grace, a minister of reconciliation, a sower of peace, right where you are today, in the places where you walk, um, as a light, as a light in the darkness of this generation. You've been listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for uh, taking me along on your day. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. 
If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.